In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who dost enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Granted by the gift of the same Spirit, we be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ, our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Holy Mother of God, Holy Mother of God, Holy Mother of God. In the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, yesterday we discussed the nature of Eve's submission to Adam, her subjection to her husband, and exactly the nature of the subjection. How originally God had established Eve to be the helpmate of Adam, and then after the fall, the blessing became a curse when he made Adam under the dominion of her husband who was to have power over her. And so it's necessary that we comprehend clearly in our minds what the nature of this obligation is. It's perfectly obvious that it's not a relationship of slavery and of complete servile subjection. But even after the curse, that we are to be really and truly the helpmates of our husbands. I suppose the, um, the blessing becomes a curse because of the nature of the fall. And pride being a sin, that we are in fact revolting against the order which God has established for our good. We've got to remember that God has made physical laws, which we are quite uh, certain in our mind that we break at our peril if we decide to jump off off a uh, 300-foot building or try to walk on the sea, that we can do none of these things and the consequences are immediate and obvious to us. With the moral laws, however, we find that uh, we are tempted and we feel that we can, uh, in fact, uh, discard them with impunity. And therefore, this is a, this is a, this is a, this is a confrontation which every woman has. Does she accept this moral law? Part of the problem of our accepting it, of course, comes from the fact that we somehow have the notion that anyone placed over us should be superior to us. When we look at the state of Eve as the helpmate of Adam, or indeed even under the dominion of Adam after the curse, I think it's very helpful for us to remember that Adam and Eve were the first human society. And it's in the nature of human societies to avoid chaos that there must be a hierarchy of order and authority. And the exercise of this order 
which is a reflection of God's authority and the order which he wishes to have in the world and in human relationships, comes from him. And that they who exercise this authority exercise their authority from him and not because they themselves, in themselves, are any better or more superior than their subjects. For example, you can see that in the, in the traditional government of monarchies, that the king becomes the supreme authority purely by an accident of birth. It doesn't mean that he's more qualified than anybody else in the country, or that in any sense he's superior to anyone else in the country. He exercises it through his position, which is the result of the order which God has established. Now, if there's any doubt in our mind about that, we've only got to look especially at the example of the Holy Family, because in the Holy Family, that is demonstrated to us, and surely God demonstrates it to us, in order that we will make the correct response to the authorities placed over us in our lives, particularly uh, the authority of our husbands. Just glance at the Holy Family. The Holy Family consists of three people. And in these people, there was definite, real superiority in themselves. Obviously, the child Jesus is God. God incarnate, the creator of heaven and earth with supreme dominion over everything and everybody. Then you have the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is the most perfect of God's creatures. In uh, every sense of that word, she is sinless, she is the moral exemplar and perfection, perfect example of what every human being should be. And then you've got St. Joseph. St. Joseph, uh, who is generally reckoned to be the greatest of all the saints. There's a little competition between St. Joseph and St. John the Baptist since our Lord said that there's none greater born of woman than St. John the Baptist. But for our purposes tonight, we consider that St. Joseph is the greatest of all the saints. Now look at the exercise of authority in the Holy Family. The person in charge was in fact the person who was the least qualified to be in charge, St. Joseph, for all of his greatness, for all his perfections. Yet he is the head of the Holy Family. And subject to him, and happily and willingly subject to him, is his wife, the Blessed Virgin Mary. What a lesson for us. But the greatest lesson of all is, of course, the subjection of the child Jesus. We're even told in the Gospel that he was subject to them, subject to his own creatures. The chasm, the gulf between the child Jesus and Our Lady is enormous. That between creator and created. And yet, in order to give us the example, he subjected himself. So, in this splendid and wonderful example, it should give us a whole different outlook on the rather negative view which is expressed or felt in regard to the subjection of Eve to Adam or women in general to men. Happiness only comes from following that command. Whether we accept it, whether we reject it, it depends our whole fulfillment in life, our whole happiness. If we fulfill God's laws, we are bound 
have the consequence of that, and the eternal consequence is happiness, and otherwise, of course, we shall be completely unhappy. So we must go to our task with a great generosity, and also to remember that essentially, that being the helpmate of our husbands, Eve being the helpmate of Adam, was not in any way in the, in the state before the fall. It was in no sense a state of slavery. It was not necessary for Eve to do the washing or do the laundry or any other tasks, cooking, which are nowadays considered to be and are, of course, the questions of work and drudgery as well. And neither when Adam was working in the Garden of Eden, of course, when he, if he provided the food for the table, it didn't involve any work. He wasn't working in the sweat of his brow. Everything which he did there was a happiness, a joy, a recreation, if you like. So Eve was in no sense meant to be the slave of Adam. She was to help him in that which is essential to him to become more and more united with the will of God. That was the whole essence of her uh, status as his helpmate. And it's this essentially that we have got to do in our own lives. Naturally now, since the fall, preparing the dinner, cleaning the house, uh, and uh, performing all the menial tasks of any household is a part of that spiritual and moral support that we've got to, to give to our husbands. But it's really the tangible demonstration of a, a union and a, uh, a support which is essentially spiritual. A union of hearts and not a state of subjection. And as we said also yesterday, marriage is really a true vocation, no less holy than the, the grueling life of the cloister. And it's the same in marriage. We've not completed our vocation to marriage once we've been through the marriage ceremony. That's only the beginning. The real vocation has got to be lived afterwards. And the real vocation is to be the helpmate, the helper of our spouse. Now, how do we do that? I've been reading various books about this question, um, written by different people, by, mostly by women, of course, naturally, as you would expect. Also, some by men, some by Catholics, and some by Protestants. And it's quite interesting that all the same books on the subject, whether they're written by Catholics or whether they're written by Protestants, they say essentially and basically, basically the same thing. And they allow for the fact that in order to be a good wife, that you cannot be in conflict with your husband's authority. In principle, this is not to say that you can't disagree or object to individual things that might happen, but you've got to accept the principle which God has established, that you are, in fact, to be his helpmate. Now, how do you actually be his helpmate? Well, to start off with the Catholic things, in the Catholic Marriage Manual, which is a a book which deals with all the different aspects of marriage, it gives some practical advice. So today, I'd like, we'll just try to descend from the 
the beautiful, poetic considerations to the reality and the nitty-gritty. In this book, there are three things that the perfect wife must do. She must understand her husband. She must accept her husband. And she must inspire her husband. And this means that essentially that she must understand that her husband is a completely... No, not a, not completely. That her husband is a different being from herself. That he is a man. That he is not a woman. That he is constituted not only physically different, but also psychologically and emotionally different. And again, this is where we can go wrong. We accept, like we were saying earlier about trying to walk on the water or throw yourself from the building, we accept that a man has got a different body from ourselves. In fact, obviously, we rather like the idea that he's got a different body from ourselves. But when it comes to the moral differences, we don't like the fact that he thinks differently from ourselves, that he's got different priorities from ourselves, that he doesn't see things in the same light as ourselves, then that gets rather annoying. And you expect him to be a woman in a man's body, essentially, really. And that is one of the fundamental differences, problems that arise in marriage, and it's one of the fundamental problems between the sexes too. Because, of course, men probably more than women, rather very much like the idea that women have got different bodies from themselves. But again, they expect women to be men. They expect women to have the same priorities as men. They expect women to see the same things as, 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 as men see them. They, they expect them to be uh, as... A, uh, as uh, have the same reactions, the same relations to the world around them as men do, and then they get very frustrated, of course, because their wife is not a man, in fact. So that one of the essential basic things is that we've got to accept this difference. And of course, that's how so many difficulties occur, because not only is it a difference of perception, then of course, when it comes to communication, when it comes to speaking, that speaking... Discussions become rows and arguments, and people end up screaming at each other because they've got taught that they're, they're, they're on a different wavelength, <laughs> and there's almost no way to there's no way to unite the two unless each are going to try to see into the minds of the other, and this isn't something which you can just do when you're having an argument. In fact, that's not the time to even try to do it. It's impossible. <laughs> but you've got to be constantly cultivating this spirit all the time. So again, this is something which is not just for women. Men have got to do the same thing. If men are going to be good fathers and husbands, they've got to accept the fact, and I would say not only just accept the fact, rejoice in the fact that their wives are different from them. And you should also rejoice in the fact that your husband is different from you. That's what makes the, that's what makes the perfection and the beauty and the richness of human nature. Because why do we want somebody to be the same as us and have the same views as us? Really, it's because we are self-centered. Why can't people see things like just exactly that I see them? It's so frustrating and annoying, isn't it? Now, it's true 
that you cannot be friends with anybody who sees things totally different from you. That is also true. A friend, a friend is somebody you recognize as having the same vision, the same view, the same understanding as you do. A friend is somebody that you don't actually have to go into long explanations about. You just know. Something happens, you don't have to even say it. You just look at each other and go. And, they, and you know exactly what they think. They don't have to explain anything. Yeah. So you cannot be friendly with somebody who's, got, who's looking at you going, what? That's not possible. So there's got to be a basic unity. And there is a basic unity. We're all human beings. So we've all got to have this basic unity. And God wills it. But there's also, within that unity, a divergence. I mean, that is also part of the, part of the beauty and the, the richness of friendships is that our friends, because they basically see things the way we do, make it possible for them to actually disagree with us without us getting angry and annoyed. Because they basically see things as we do, but they see other nuances which they're able to share with us. And that's why really only our friends can, only our friends can correct us. I mean, even if we want to actually correct somebody or criticize them, sometimes we actually say that. Oh, look, um, as a fr- I'm only saying this as a friend. <laughs> That's why you pray for it. You know, it's only as a friend I'm saying this. Some, I mean, sometimes people say that very cruelly. But when it comes from the heart and you know it's true, then you'll listen. I mean... As a friend, I'm telling you, the way you behaved there, there was, actually, it was, it was not very good. It was very bad. But if you say to somebody, you know, the way you behaved there, that was absolutely just great. You, you'll, never, you'll, never, you'll never win them over. They'll never, they'll never correct themselves. In fact, they'll, they'll be you know, determined. So, presumably, with your husband, you've seen, at some stage anyway, however things may have gone wrong since, I hope nothing else, but if it has... That there must have been some stage in your life where you saw things or thought you saw things basically the same. And therefore, your life should be a constant enrichment of your basic perceptions brought to a richer color. You know, like black and white film and color film, if you like. It's the same picture. But if you share it with somebody else... You see the colour sometimes. You know, it makes life more colourful. That's why we've got friends and that's why we've obviously got spouses. Our life should be enriched. But it's possible whenever there's differences for these differences to be exaggerated. So we've got to be constantly on our guard to be accentuating the similarities in our lives rather than the difference. Because we prioritise our thoughts. We give the first place to whatever we want to give the first place in our minds. When we look at another person, we basically prioritize their negative or their positive aspects. Because everybody's got positive and negative aspects, and nobody's so perfect that they've got nothing wrong with them. And there's nobody either so bad that they've got nothing good about them either. So we've got to We've got to prioritize in our minds and see, without denying the negative aspects, we've got to prioritize the positive aspects. And when you think about it, it's only when we do that, it's only when we make somebody our friend, 
that we are able in any way to influence the negative side of them. And that's why, that's how we, that's how we help each other. That's how friends help each other. And as we were saying also, in the, in, the, in the whole state of marriage, because there is such intimacy as exists in no other state of life, that we see more deeply into each other than anybody else sees, so that with a, we've really got the choice, really, that we either see in this other person, the person whom we most love in the world, in spite of all their faults, or if we have a different set of priorities, the person that we most hate in the world, regardless of their good points. I think that in marriage, it's, marriage is more than just an ordinary friendship. It's a real, it's a real union and penetration of two beings, either for good or, as it should be, or of course, it's like every, you know, it's like every two-edged, two-edged sword. A knife is a sharp knife, cuts very sharply when you're cutting what you want to cut, and it also cuts very sharply if you have an accident. <laughs> so, so it's either really up to us how we, how we use it. So it's very important that we understand and that we seek, first of all, to understand, which is already a big exercise in itself because it demands getting out of ourselves, and then, not only to understand, because to understand is, um, what shall I say, it's a, it's a speculative uh, thing. But to accept is a movement of the heart. One is a movement of the mind, to understand, and then to accept is a movement of the heart. And this is not, obviously, this, this acceptation doesn't mean to tolerate, um, well, it doesn't mean to tolerate, it doesn't mean to overlook or ignore or minimize the negative aspects of our spouse, but it means to love them with all their faults, exactly as God loves us. I mean, we don't say, I'm not a perfect person, so God doesn't love me or can't love me. In fact, it would be a blasphemy to say such a thing. I mean, we say regularly, God loves sinners. Now, normally, <laughs> that really should be a contradiction in terms, because how can God love sinners? God certainly does not love sin. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But God does love sinners. And the only way that any sinner will repent is when he becomes conscious of the fact that in spite of the fact that he's a sinner, that God loves him. If, he, if he's got the idea that because he's a sinner, God hates him, he'll never repent. How could you possibly repent? I am a sinner. God hates me. That's despair. That's finished. And therefore, we've got to have the same attitude. Our spouse, our husband will be exactly the same. If your husband can say, I am a real rat bag. <laughs> but nevertheless, my wife loves me. He will 
maybe not overnight, but he will become more the husband that you would like him to be. Now you might say, there's another side to that coin. Well, you, could, you could in your mind make up another thing that your husband might say, I'm a rat bag, my wife loves me, so I'll continue being a rat bag because she's so stupid. <laughs> now, I don't know if that actually works because anybody who do that is not going to start off by saying, I'm a rat bag anyway. <laughs> They're not going to start off with the premise that they're a rat bag. So, it, so what I mean, what, what I mean is, if so, if, I mean, if you've got a, if, you're, if you've got a husband who's beyond any hope, who's incapable of saying I'm a rat bag, well, you've got a big problem. But if you've got a husband who actually sees that he is not that good, that's already the beginning of being good. It's when we, we only become saints on condition that we recognise that we are sinners. There are no saints who were not conscious of the fact that they were sinners. If they were conscious of the fact that they were not sinners, they would never be saints, because they would be proud. Everybody who born into this world, with the exception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, has... Oh, St. John the Baptist, but St. John... Everybody who's been conceived, let's say, to be theologically correct, had been conceived under original sin. So nobody in this world can say that they are not sinners. Or they certainly can't say that they're not tempted to sin. And if we are tempted to sin, we're acknowledging that sin has a, an interest for us. So we, even if we've never actually given in to it, it's a, uh, that's, why, that's why our Lord was tempted. Our Lord was tempted, not in the sense that he was actually interested in the temptation as such, but he was tempted so that we should understand that no one escapes this temptation. So what I mean is that it's only by demonstrating love, understanding, and consideration that there's any hope. Condemnation, nagging, refusing to understand, refusing to accept because, because the the bad points or the vices of people are not what interest us. They're not the vices and the, the weaknesses that understand us. We don't understand that we're not interested in, in what the kind of things that they do is useless. So we've got, to, we've got to have this understanding and this acceptance and also we've got to inspire likewise our um, spouse. The power of women is immense. Nobody should underestimate the power of women over men. What prayer, what priest can tame the fury of the beast? <laughs> what prayer, what priest can tame the fury of the beast? Woman. That's what. Men have been made for women, and women have been made for men. The salvation of men comes through women and vice versa. And therefore, women have an enormous power over men, for good or for evil. And therefore, you can only inspire 
if you're inspiring. Like you can only be loved if you're lovable. If you're not lovable, nobody's going to love you. So if you're not inspired, if you're inspiring. And how can you inspire to hire things? How can you inspire somebody else to hire things unless you yourself are aspiring to hire things? And therefore, I think that these three things, these three things are intimately related with each other. This, if you show that you are understanding, seeking constantly, not just occasionally or showing off that you're understanding, but you, one's conscious of the fact, and because you live in such close, intimate union with each other, you know whether people are trying to fool you or not. So you can see that this person really is trying to understand you, is trying to accept you, in spite of all of your failings, in spite of all of your weaknesses, in spite of all the horrible things that you've done to them, this is also more to the point, all despite of the horrible things that you've done to them, all the wicked things you've said to them, all the cruelties that you've inflicted upon them, all the indifference that you've showered upon them, that is in itself an inspiration. Could anything be more inspiring than that? It's, the whole thing, it's a... The, the, the things are the, the, they're completely and totally inseparable from each other. And I think that that's what we've got to be seeking and working and working towards. Understand, accept, inspire. U A I. You are it for me. Or the three A's of your life, which are to be attentive, caring, affectionate, and approving. Because you've got to accept the faults, but you must also approve of the virtues and demonstrate an appreciation and an admiration of your spouse. And it should be a joy and a pleasure and the greatest thing in life to be able to admire your spouse. Because all men are exceedingly proud and they love to be admired. And if you admire them, they'll love you. <laughs> it's, it's a fact. So most of these books about marriage guides, they seem to, they seem, they seem to agree, that the, and, and I think it's probably true, that, the, that the, 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 all, all human beings need to be loved. That's, and without love, we all die, regardless of our, of our gender. But women have got to feel and have a tangible demonstration that they're loved. Men need to feel and have the tangible demonstration that they're admired. <laughs> and I think it's really true. Women are meant to... It's a funny thing, isn't it? If you, the more you look at life, the more paradoxical it is. Men are meant to be the firm rocks, the firm anchors the immovable center of gravity 
never showing their emotions, always being in control. And women are allowed to sort of burst into tears and uh, throw hysterics and uh, be emotional and change their minds and be up and down and all that kind of thing. And yet, men need these emotional, insecure women to give them the strength and the confidence to be men. It's funny, really, but it's a fact. It's an absolute fact. Men have got to be constantly reassured that they are worthy of admiration, that they really are great and wonderful creatures, that really are good and solid, because how do they know unless somebody tells them? How do they know that they really are real men unless some woman affirms the fact? Well, maybe their mates might affirm, but it's not not the same thing. (laughs) Being one of the boys is not quite the same thing. Because, of course, masculinity only makes sense in relation to femininity. It doesn't make sense in relation to the rest of the boys. Being one of the boys is not giving the same affirmation as the opposite. How do you know and how do you feel that you're really a woman? It's only when a man demonstrates it that you are. You're not so impressed if some other woman sort of admires your feminine qualities. Are you? <laughs> In fact, you might be sort of annoyed or irritated. <laughs> so it's, it's really it's important, to, it's important to do that. And so, again, foolishness, like asserting yourself, to try to assert yourself over your husband, even when you're actually right, even when you're morally right, even when you're intellectually more intelligent or whatever, to do that kind of thing is never, ever going to have him acknowledge that you're in the right or that you are superior or any of the kind. Because if you try to do that, you're competing with him as a man. That's how men compete with each other. Who's right, who's wrong, who's the strongest, who's got the most authority, all these kind of things. And if you're trying to compete as a man, you're actually belittling him as a man, really. And he'll pay no attention to you whatsoever. So you've always got to play the game. And it's not a game because it's a reflection of reality. It's a reflection of things as they are meant and intended to be. And it's only that you'll actually make him what he should be is by doing that. I mean, it's the same with any authority. Anybody in authority actually has got no authority. The only authority they've got is the authority that their subjects give them. (laughs) Kings and queens only rule over the subjects who recognize them. If there's a revolution and they're thrown out, they can still put their crown on their heads, but their authority is utterly meaningless. And so it's necessary to exercise this authority. It's part of the thing is to have it recognized. And therefore, it's an important role to do that. 
And, and, and if women don't do that with their husbands, they've destroyed all authority. It's the most revolutionary, actually. It's the most revolutionary disorder that exists. Because if your children see that, if it's, because you can't keep a thing like that secret, when your children see that, then all notion of authority is completely destroyed in them. If they've got no respect for their parents and the, the authority of their, their parents, they will have no respect for any other authority in their lives, for the teachers in the school, for the policemen, for the government, for the king. And they will have no authority, they will have no recognition of the authority of God because it's all part of God's authority. That's why disasters in the family and disasters in the intimacy of the home have got incalculable effects on the whole world and on the whole of society. What you do in the secret of your home is not actually secret. It's public. I mean, that's why marriage is a public thing in the first place. Marriage is fundamental to society. Marriage isn't like a private love affair or a secret friend or, or, or even, a, even, a, even a public friendship. You don't have to declare for all the world that your best friend is Mary or Jane or something like that. <laughs> even no matter how much you may be attached to them. But marriage is not a private affair. It's a public affair. It concerns everybody. That's why you've got to declare it in the church and in the state. And if it's not declared publicly, its public value is not recognized, but its public consequence remains. So it's really... The, the immensity of our responsibility sometimes escapes us. It always escapes us because we are so wrapped up in ourselves all the time. That's what we were saying earlier. What was the first consequence of original sin? Was that Adam and Eve noticed that they were naked. They hadn't noticed before. Why hadn't they noticed before? Simple. Before sin, they weren't self-conscious. They didn't notice that they were naked because they weren't thinking about themselves. They were, complete, they were like babies, like innocent babies. Babies don't notice that they're naked. They're, they're, because, because also babies apart from the basic needs of nature, having to eat and drink and so on, don't think about themselves. They're completely, you know, unembarrassed and open. It's only when they become self-conscious in every other way that they realise that they are naked. And that's what, that's what it is. That's what we are. The consequence of original sin was to turn us on ourselves and into ourselves. And to break that, we've got to turn out of ourselves. Now, again, we've not got, in reality, much choice about this unless we want to make our, our lives miserable. We've irrevocably given ourselves, for better or worse, that's what it says, to somebody else. Now, it's in our own best interest to concentrate on the positive aspects of that person. Because if we do, we have at least a chance of making ourselves happy. If we concentrate on their negative sides, it's a certitude that we are constantly making ourselves more and more miserable every day. It's just a natural consequence of the thing. 
So we've got to really seek to see above all and to cultivate the positive aspects of our husbands. I don't know if you've... This is, there's, a bit, there's a book by a Protestant lady called Fascinating Womanhood. Have you ever read it? It's quite a fascinating book, in fact. It's a little bit... Um, maybe it's a very American. But it's a, because it's American, of course, it's very practical. And she's written a whole book about the question of wives... And it sold millions. I think it sold two. Well, this this edition, this is from the 1990s, and it sold two million copies. And I think it's known as the book that the feminists love to hate. And it's all about. It's not as I say. It's not written by a Catholic, but it's written by. It's written by. Um, it's written from the a very strictly scriptural point of view, and it's really basically a, advice on how to practice being the helpmate of our husbands. And she, what's interesting about this is that she actually says the same thing as the Catholic marriage manual, but she goes into much, much greater detail. And she subdivides it into all sorts of individual sections, and they're very, very fascinating. She says that the perfect wife has got two sides to her. She's meant to be essentially angelic and at the same time completely human. So again, she's got to, she's got to embody everything, all the virtues in one. And she breaks down, just, just, if, you just, if you just go through the... Wow, the time's going on. If we just go through the, uh, the, the even the, just the, 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 the series of contents alone uh, are very revealing. So there's got to be a spiritual side, the angelic qualities, and then a down-to-earth side, the sort of human qualities. Because nobody wants a wife who's just a complete drudge. But nobody wants a wife either whose head's so in the clouds that she's not actually getting the dinner ready. So, it's, it's, so you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, print, you've got to be a Mrs. Wonderful, you see, Mrs. Paragon of all virtue. Well, she's got this. The book's divided into two parts: part one, angelic; part two, human. And the part one is divided into seventeen chapters: how to be the angelic. Wife, and these chapters are headings and subdivisions, and it's really quite interesting because she's got it that the perfect woman understands men. She, in herself, has got, got and radiates an inner happiness. So she's got understanding. She spreads because she understands. She spreads happiness around her. She is a worthy character in herself, so she's inspiring, she's virtuous, and she's a domestic goddess. Everything she does in the home is perfect. Now, entering out of these 17 chapters, she devotes 14 out of 17 to the question of understanding men. And it's really quite revealing. And here they are, here they are that you've got to accept him as a man, as a man in the sense of being the other sex, 
You've got to accept that he's a man, not a woman. And then you've got to accept him as a man, as an individual man among these other men. So you've got you know, double acceptation. You've got to see him as being different from yourself in his constitution. And also see him different from everybody else. He's not you either. He's not only not a woman, he's not you. So you can't expect him to be absolutely you. And that therefore, as a consequence of accepting him, you therefore come to appreciate him for what he is and for what he does. There'll be taken for granted that there are plenty of things that you can't appreciate about him because they're not worthy of appreciation. But you concentrate on what is worthy to be appreciated. And as a consequence of your appreciation, then you admire him. If you've got a moment, we'll come back to the question of admiring because it's very profound and it's quite the most amusing characteristic as well, you see, I think, at the same time. So, accept, appreciate, admire, and then once you've done these three, he then becomes really and truly number one in your life. That your husband must be absolutely number one. Nobody else not even your children, all right? Not even your children. Your husband must always be number one. You've not devoted your life to your children. You've devoted your life to your husband. Your children are the consequence of devoting your life to your husband. As you left your parents, that's what it says, a man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife so also your children in God's plan will leave you. And guess who they will leave you with? <laughs> now. Huh? So. <laughs> so you absolutely must, because this is how it's ordained by God. And so you've got to do, like everything that God has ordained, you must seek to follow his divine plan, regardless of what you think about it, regardless of what you feel about it, because what your emotions dictate, you must do this. And if you don't do it, there will be, as we say, there will be a moral consequence. Because if your children see that you're more concerned with them than with their father, then they will either despise you for mistreating their father, or they'll love you with a wrong love and despise their father likewise. And if you have that kind of a division in your family then these children will, you have deprived these children from the perfection of their childhood. The two things are absolutely inseparable. Now, if your spouse is working against you, well, that's another question. We're not here tonight to speak about your spouse. We're speaking about what we do, what we do. This, this, these, these, these talks are for us, the people who are here at the moment, not for, for nobody else. We've got to see that we do not enter into this destructive whirlpool which can only destroy ourselves. It's like, it's like husbands and wives having arguments. Now they can have friendly arguments. They can even very, have very violent friendly arguments in private and only ever in private. Never, ever, ever should you show discord in front of your children. Because as far as your children are concerned, 
you should be, you are meant to be, one indivisible authority. And if you show that you're not one indivisible authority, you've already divided your authority. Because if you divide your authority from your husband's authority, you're not left with 100% authority. (laughs) Don't believe it for a moment. (laughs) You're left with a fraction, not even half, a fraction of any authority. And in fact, you have no authority because children, of course, are very astute. So they'll start playing whenever they want their own way. They'll play your husband against you and you'll play you against him. So never, ever do that. So, you've got to recognize your husband as the leader. Because that's what God has established. Not in the sense that he's absolutely Mr. Perfect and Mr. Wonderful, because we're saying in every domain of human life, it doesn't mean to say that you're perfect. The king isn't sitting on his throne because he's the most perfect person in the kingdom. <laughs> Obviously. But if everybody tries to sit on the throne, well, you've got big trouble. He is meant to be the protector of his family. And therefore he's got to be encouraged to be the protector and the provider. So if you usurp his authority, it makes it impossible for him to, to fulfill his role. And often when he's less capable, how many weak men in positions of authority, how many kings, for example? I mean, royalty is an interesting point because, of course, kings' royalty become coming to their authority by pure accident of birth. It's not because of any merit on their part. How many weak men have become great kings because they married... A strong but helpful wife. A wife who in fact was stronger, far stronger than them, but who gave to their husband their strength and made him rise above himself in a manner which he could never otherwise have done and fulfilled their lives without entering into competition with their husbands at all. It's fascinating. Now, if you look at, actually, if you look at the, in the, in the, in the, in the present royal family, there's blinding demonstrations of that. You've got the good combination and the bad combination. The good combination, of course, was King George VI and the Queen Mother. King George VI, as you know, became king by accident. His brother should have become the king. He was actually a very weak man, a nervous wreck. He never expected to be king. He couldn't even give a speech. He couldn't actually speak, because I'm speaking to you now. He had stammered. He couldn't speak. You can just actually film of him, the king, addressing a huge crowd, going, Imagine that. And he was the king. Not only was he king, he was the greatest king on earth. He was the king of the whole British Empire and the emperor of India, and he's standing, going, And he got this old battle axe, the Queen Mother, who was a very, very determined woman. And she made him 
the man who was able to carry the British Empire through the war. He even managed, he even actually overcame, still there, but he managed to overcame his, his stammer. And she, she was the one who made him who he was. He was and, and, but she never, ever competed with him. She was absolute, and he, of course, the poor, old, the poor man, it took it out of him, he died when he was, he was died in his 50s, and she went on to 100 knots. She was far stronger than him. <laughs> but she led a beautiful and a perfect life. Now, you've got the other one, the one who everybody loves to admire, Princess Diana. <laughs> and she married, she, she's, a, she's a very determined woman too, and she married another man who is probably kind of weak. And, of course, she went into competition with him. And they've got all these terrible scandals. You know, the whole story, which this great drama. And what good did it do her? She made herself miserable and happy. She made everybody unhappy. And, well, now she's gone to her eternal reward. Upstaging, upstaging your husband. Trying to make your husband look ridiculous. What good does it do? And anyway, what do you get out of it? What kind of a woman is it who's married to an idiot? I mean, what does it say for yourself if you're actually telling the world that your husband's a Mr. Nobody and a good-for-nothing, useless wretch? What does it tell you about you? <laughs> I mean, what does it tell you about you? What kind of an idiot are you for to have married somebody like that in the first place? And you can only make yourself unhappy by... Concentrating on that. It's your role to lift. And when you lift your spirit, because, because it's flesh of flesh and bone of bone, when you raise up your spouse, you raise yourself up. And when you pull him down, even if he deserves to be pulled down, even if he deserves to be pulled down, you pull yourself down in the process. You can't separate. You're inseparable. That's what you've said. And God has taken you at your word. You didn't have to say it. Nobody forced you to say it, for better or for worse. Nobody forced you. You said it. And so, it's in your own interest to make your husband appear to be Mr. Wonderful. Because when he looks for Mr. Wonderful, you inevitably look Mrs. Wonderful. They're inseparable. You you cannot separate them. It's only two, two. So also you've got to be deferential to his, uh, you've got to be, you've got, you really have to be Mrs. Wonderful. You've got to be deferential to him in his role as a, the main provider of the family. For, for example, women who go out to work and, for example, and earn more money than their husbands, that's a dangerous situation. Because by doing that, I mean, they may have more money. The whole family will be better off with money-wise, but will not be better off in terms of happiness. Because inevitably, because of the man's masculine pride and his sensitivity to his role, his God-given role, will feel demeaned by such a wife. It's inevitable. It's got to happen. Unless, of course, obviously, if your husband's ill or is incapable, that's a separate thing. There's nothing can be done about that. I mean... It's rather like, I mean, children suffer when their parents separate. They suffer, but they suffer in a total different way if one of their parents dies. If they're left with their mother who's a widower, a widower that's a completely different thing from being left by a woman, who, left by a mother whose who's father's deserted them. 
two different things. When you've got to do things, you've got to do things. The queen's got to rule if there is no king. It's everything. Women have got to, see, this is why women have got to be really marvellous. Because on the one hand, they've got to act in an apparently subordinate position. But whenever any emergency arises, they've got to be able to cope with the first position. That's what's got to happen. And that's what makes them so admirable. Because nobody, even from the point of view of the husband, they want to have a wife who is lovingly helpful and doesn't try to upstage them. But they don't want a wife who's so absolutely useless that she can't do anything. And who isn't able to, uh, to, um, to, to rise to an emergency. That would be crazy also. The thing is always to live out the role which Almighty God has established. We've always got to think, and until it becomes second nature, we, can't always be, we don't have to be so self-conscious. We're always thinking, is this right? Is this wrong? Should I, is this the perfect wifely thing to do or not? We should get to a stage where it becomes kind of second nature. And it should be second nature because it's a law of nature. It's not something which has to be completely learned. But it's not something specific. This is nothing, nothing specifically Catholic. It's not specifically Christian. It's common to the, the whole of the human race. And you've got to be careful not to wound his masculine pride. You've got to give him sympathetic understanding. And once you've done that, then and not done it in purely out of the sense of duty, but having done it because it's the right thing to do, you then are able to have an inner peace and an inner happiness with your lot in life, with your situation in life. And if you're happy with, basically happy, it doesn't mean to say you're happy with everything that happens, but the, the trials and the problems of life, even with your husband, are on the surface, but in the depths of yourself, you're happy. And therefore you radiate that to him and to your children. You're not so weak, of course, ever, ever, ever so weak that you give in to anything which he suggests which is wrong, which is morally wrong, which is against the law of God. That, of course, would be to cooperate in sin and would in fact um, would in fact destroy your authority and influence and inspiration over him. Surely men want to admire and love women who are on pedestals. It's funny, you've got to be you've got to be on the one hand you've got to be on the pedestal and washing the nappies. It's an unusual sort of combination. <laughs> but it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a, it's a marvellous thing. But if you allow yourself to be knocked off the pedestal, and if you allow him to knock you off the pedestal, your husband, if he's got any, well, even if he has got no character, I mean, vice has always got to, in the end, recognise the power of virtue. Even if he, he himself tries to knock you off the pedestal, if you won't fall then he knows that where you belong really and truly is on that pedestal 
and but he will he will love he will love you all the more for it in the end. Even by going against his will in a will which is wrong and perverse, you're actually again bolstering his authority. Because if you're given to abuses of authority, then you're helping the person to destroy their own authority. It's, 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 it's marvelous. So if you, I was going to read a few passages from this book, but it's all gone on too long, because she's got really some wonderful insights about how to speak to men and how to listen to men and all these kind of things. And they're, they're very amusing, as well as being very, very incisive. But I won't, I won't inflict that on you. And then, there can, and then the, the human qualities, of course, are a bit more, there's no need to labor them, but they're important. That a woman must look like a woman, to start off with. Mm? That we mustn't, because we are married, take no care any longer about what we look like. As you know, men are very influenced by feminine beauty. And that's how God made it. That's God, this, is, this is not anything bad. This is a positive good. And therefore, in order to... It's not essential, but it's an important thing, and therefore it cannot be neglected. You should look attractive. You should want your husband to be proud of you, that he's married to a beautiful, elegant woman. Not to some... I don't know. (laughs) And if you do that, it will make a huge difference to your life. It It must make a huge difference to your life, because it's something which is fundamental to the... The psychology of men. Appearance, the beauty of the feminine body. And I don't mean, I'm not speaking about anything immoral now. This is not, or, or, or improper. It's necessary that this should be so. Without, of course, going to, you know, going to extremes. You can go to extremes. If you're sort of all painted up and only caring about what you look like, then you're certainly far from being the perfect wife and mother. But that does not mean that you can go to the opposite extreme and not bother what you look like. Also, quite apart from anything else, you want, from your children's self-respect, you want your children to have a mother who looks presentable. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. You can see some mothers who go on about their children's appearance. You know, pull up your socks, tie your laces, and, I don't know, comb your hair, put your hat on, and you look at the mother. She's a total wreck herself. I mean, it's... <laughs> it's... it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not wrong. It's like everything. You must practice always what you, what you preach. This is really, and this is really important. It is men, men feel more men when they are married to as feminine a wife as they can have. If they feel they're married to just another bloke, well... It's not the same allure. So, really, that's really important. And that's surely also one of the... I mean, there are many reasons now for why there's no more chivalry and there's no more... What shall I say? There's no more proper manners and respect for women. It's for many, many reasons. But it's... I'm sure a lot of it is to do with appearance. And this is this isn't this is this is nothing to do. We're not speaking about modesty or anything. I'm not speaking about because you can be very very modest and look an absolute disaster. 
So it's, don't think, well, I'm dressed very modestly. That's really, that's only one part of the issue. So really, women have got to be women. They've got to be feminine. And part of being feminine is looking elegant. And God has put it in the, God has put it in the nature of women to take a pride in their appearance for a reason. Not just out of vanity, but so that they will be attractive to their husbands or their prospective husbands. That is a good thing, as long as it's all within the moral law. And so, and, and not only have you got to look feminine, you've got to also act feminine and speak feminine. If you're going to have a worthy husband, if you want just any of the scum of the dregs of society, that's fine. Just put on your jeans, go down to the pub, start swilling the beer, start swearing, say to your female friends, hey, you guys! And, and if you think that men will love you because of that, they won't. I mean, they may think that you're a great mate, just like the other mates down at the pub, but they won't, they won't, they won't consider you as, as a woman at all. If you want to be like a man, you'll in fact be treated like a man. That's why there's no chivalry, that's why women, men don't open doors and give women seats and things like that. I mean, how can you do that? How do you do it to some, somebody who's going around in, I don't know, well, in the way that they go around with no respect for themselves. You cannot have nobody, really, except, of course, motivated by supernatural charity. And we all know how difficult it is to be motivated by supernatural charity. Nobody has respect for anybody who's got no respect for themselves. It's obvious, obvious, obvious. If they've got no respect for themselves, if you've got, and, and anyway, if you've got no respect for yourself, how can you expect anybody else to have respect for you? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's just madness. So do bear that in mind. That's very, very important. You must have not only the right appearance, you must have a feminine manner. And that doesn't mean going all silly and stupid and so on, but you must act in a manner which is always beautiful and gracious. And not masculine. That's the defining thing. Not masculine. I don't know how it's come about that it's socially acceptable for women to do almost anything that men do. But it's still, thank God, it's still socially unacceptable for men to do what women do. Women going, oh, dad, darling, dear. Or women wearing skirts or doing all this kind of thing. Well, even now, perverse as it is, most people think that's really, there's something really seriously wrong there. And yet, women going around and acting like men seems to be somehow or other acceptable, which is bizarre. It's peculiar. Why would any, why would any woman want to do it anyway? Why do they want to do it? Do they want to do it? Or are they just doing it because it's all part of the herd instinct? They're afraid that if they don't do it, they'll be considered to be no longer members of the herd because we're all so formed by social pressures, for good or for bad. So we must have that manner, that appearance. We must radiate a whole feminine sort of uh, atmosphere around us. And... She says, this is up to you, maybe getting a bit fanciful, she, she says, and she's the she's mother, I 
She's not an old spinster. She's a mother of many, many children. She says that a wife should be childlike. <laughs> childlike. Not childish. Uh, not childish, but childlike. In the sense that our Lord says, unless you become as little children that you kind of enter into the, ch- in the kingdom of heaven. That in other words, that a, a wife should be, have a manner which is simple, innocent, non, 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 non-aggressive, conciliatory, with a kind of charm and innocence which will want to bring out the masculine, protective instincts in a man. I think it's a little bit fanciful, but it's nevertheless the basic notion of it is, is right. Much is in the packaging. It's true. <laughs> Much is in the packaging. How you present, most of us, how we present ourselves to the world is how the world takes us. I mean, for example, we all think that it's very important for priests to be wearing political dress. Oh, oh, I saw Father without his collar. Oh, isn't it terrible? Do you know that Father down there? He's always going around in jeans. But we think nothing of going around total wrecks, not dressing up to our own, the, uh, to our own responsibilities in life. And that's somehow or other all right. What the priest's wearing is it creates your reaction to him. But the queen's wearing, and the queen, she always goes around in the most respectable, old-fashioned, because that's, what, that's how she'll get, that's how she'll look majestic. Nobody will respect her if she goes around wearing jeans. If she goes to wears trousers, you notice that the queen, for example, never wears trousers, never, ever. Well, when she goes riding, but she never wears trousers on any other occasion. The public perception of her would be completely different if she did. Totally different. Just, and, and why? I mean, it's funny, really. It shouldn't make really any difference whether you're wearing trousers or a skirt or whether a priest's wearing a, whether a, priest's wearing a skirt or not. I mean, <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it does. It makes a whole psychological difference. Now, that applies not just to the people that we see. That applies to the people who see us. And above all, to our husbands and our children who see us. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe you think I'm going a bit far. I mean, I, I'm by no means a fanatic about these things. I don't think that women are going to go to hell if they wear a pair of trousers like some priests do. But I do think that the, a child's perception of their mother who wears trousers and who doesn't wear trousers is going to be quite different. I try to think what, what my perception of my own mother would be if I'd ever seen her wearing trousers, especially, especially when I was a child. I mean, thank God she's never worn trousers. But now, not because I don't think there's anything immoral about wearing trousers, nothing at all. I don't think she'd go to hell if she decides to wear trousers. But it's part of this image and presentation. The habit does not make the monk... But it goes a long way to receiving the acknowledgement of one's state in life. And there is nothing, ultimately, there is nothing more dignified than being a mother. It's more dignified than being the queen. And therefore, 
to live up to that role alone. I'm only speaking on the purely human level. Your children are going to have a completely different idea of you. It's inevitable. I know it seems funny, but yet it's not that funny because it's a perception which everybody recognized until nowadays. It's only nowadays that the most basic perceptions of life which everybody shared and everybody just took as a matter of course and common sense seems to have been lost. And I don't know why that should be. I think it's because, of course, of the sense of all that comes back in the end is to the, the, the sense of God. Nothing ultimately, there's nothing ultimate about anything now. Everything is a matter of as you like it. But it's not. There are objective norms about almost everything in life. And there are certainly objective norms of beauty and ugliness. So try to bear that in mind. It's really quite important how we, especially for women, to, to, uh, how they present themselves to the world at large. Oh, dearie me, I'm so sorry. I didn't think that I had gone on so long. Right, so now that we've spoken about, I won't go on anymore about being man's helpmate. Tomorrow we'll speak about being a mother of your children, our relationship now with our children. Now that we've got this point clear, because this point is, I think it was, it's worth, it was worth laboring and laboring hard. And it's worth also to, I mean, you can't, you can't be a mother without actually being, you can't, you can't know about motherhood without actually being one. But even, even in our own vocations, it's good to have, some insights which sometimes we, we miss, especially with all the mad propaganda that there is about all sorts of other things. So I, yeah, this little book, I think, is quite, quite, quite a good thing. It certainly must have done a lot of good. And it shows that there are lots of women who want to be women when it sells by the millions. So that's also a comforting thought. Anyway, let us go to benediction. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Ghost, amen. <clears throat> Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, the eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, shun to us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.